Well, I think initially there may be some resistance, but I think as more and more uh, leaders receive the vaccine, for instance, boy, I, I'm going to be one of the very first people and I'm very excited about it. I will now be able to see my brother safely without the danger of contracting the infection or spreading the infection to anyone else. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. The United States has begun distributing vaccines to frontline workers and those most at risk. This comes as the number of cases remains out of control in almost every corner of the country. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence, Dr. Bill Lang, and Dr. Fred Southwick discuss the vaccine rollout, why it's critically important to keep masks on and avoid crowds, as well as how long it might take to achieve herd immunity. Let's listen in. Bill, Fred, again, thank you for spending some time with us. And it's at a particular, particularly critical juncture, time where the vaccine has uh, just started to roll out. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the rate of infections is spiking across the country, uh, not on an isolated basis, but really almost everywhere. And uh, medical resources, hospitals are being taxed uh, to their capacity. Uh, want to basically divide our conversation today into two parts. One is, what is the data showing? And um, you sort of view ahead. And then, of course, as the vaccine rolls out, what can we share with our audience about timing, scheduling, availability, and the types of issues that doctors will be contending with. So, Fred, maybe we'll start with you because I know you're particularly focused on the data on a national level. Well, yes. I um, I just looked at the Harvard Global Health Institute map and the entire map, which means great 25 per 100,000 or greater cases per day. The entire United States is red. It's incredible. I, I, I just am astounded. And uh, in our own uh, county now, it is 38 per 100,000. And 25 per 100,000 above that is out of control. So basically, the entire country, with very rare exception, is out of control. And so that means that we don't, there's so many cases, there could never be case finding or control we really have to assume that right now we have to assume everyone and anyone is infected. And we really need to limit our mobility as much as possible and avoid public places whenever possible because no matter how careful you are right now, you are, you could be at risk if you go outside of your house, unfortunately. Bill, in terms of, uh, I know you, you have counseled people about family gatherings, et cetera. Is this the the spike that comes about post the Thanksgiving holidays and the traveling and the family gatherings? Is this a result of colder weather and people being indoors? How are you assessing the current data? Yes, it's, it's all that. It's a little bit of everything. It is the post-Thanksgiving. It is the colder weather with people being indoors. But I think the common theme across all of that, it's people who are not following the, the guidance on the non-pharmaceutical interventions. That's the, that is the wearing a mask. That's 
maintaining six foot distance. That's not going into large, large uh, family gatherings or business gatherings. It's the way I keep talking to the companies that I work with is I say you should be telling everybody who does choose to come into the office, which should be a smaller and smaller number right now. But for everybody who does choose to come into an office or any kind of collective gathering is assume everybody else in that room or in that office is positive for COVID. Now, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to wear a mask. You're going to make sure they wear a mask. You're going to stay apart from them, probably ideally more than six feet. Anytime that you're having interactions with them at all, you're going to keep those interactions short so that if it, if tomorrow they say, oh, the person next to you had had has COVID today, you can confidently look back and say, no, I did not have any close contact for more than 15 minutes with that person. Uh, that's the only way that we're going to, to get through that. But right now, what I'm very much afraid of is that people say, oh, the vaccine's here, all over, we're done, we don't need to worry about this anymore. Well, the vaccine is going to get us to that point in a few months, but we've got to get through these few months before then. So let me just uh, go back to a point you made Uh, in terms of the advice that you're giving to companies about reopening their offices and bringing back the workforce. uh, I'm hearing you say that um, that should be scaled back or at least put on hold uh, for the foreseeable future. David, the way that with the people that I've been working with is what I did from the very beginning is I said, look, and this was when people were in you know, April when the, the, the peak was relatively high on the curve. And I said, let's set criteria for when you can move to phases. But remember, that's the exact same criteria that you need to use when you move back from phases. So what should be happening now is people should be looking at these numbers that we're seeing in the community and backing off uh, sending people back home again to work from home to the greatest extent possible where they can they can essentially it's not a formal quarantine of course but they can essentially quarantine themselves um looking at the specific numbers right now there there is a, a one piece of good news and that good news is that in 27 states plus the plus DC rates are actually down uh, for the last 7 days the average is down over the last 7 days but that's down from at, at levels that are so high, uh, just as Fred said, that we are way above the 25 cases per 100,000. The mean right now, the mean across the country is a, right around 75 cases per 100,000 per day. That's triple what is considered an uncontrolled outbreak. So that's that's where things are. So yes, things are coming down, but they're coming down from so high a level, and there's still half the states where the levels are still going up. Bill, that's really impressive in that Florida was the the most contagious state uh, back in about uh, July with 74 per hundred thousand. We were the number one state for for new cases, and now that's the average. So to the extent that. People are hearing about numbers starting to come down. The takeaway from both of you is it may be coming down, but it's coming down from an extraordinary, extraordinarily high level, and we're still very, very much at risk. Yeah, I, I would say, David, we went from very, very dangerous to very dangerous. Got it. Okay. And Fred, you've talked about the implications for hospitals, hospital staff, and the ability of hospitals to actually 
treat patients and getting to such a critical number that uh, uh, we're going to run short of resources again, which of course was part and parcel of the initial efforts to have people isolate and stay home for work, for school, etc. I assume that that also remains very much in your area of concern. Yeah, one one of the myths is, oh, we now have great treatments, so people won't have to end up staying in the hospital very long, and they won't end up in the ICU, and they won't die. But that is simply not the case. Unfortunately, none of the medications we have are miracle drugs. They do reduce the viral load and blunt the illness to some extent, but it's in order for it to work, it has to be started very early for remdesivir and also the monoclonal antibody. You want to catch, we recommend, within five days of symptoms uh, for the monoclonal. And then remdesivir, um, we, they shouldn't be in the, if they're in the ICU, it's too late. So we have some early therapies. The problem is people don't come to the attention of physicians until they're beyond that point, in which case we really, other than dexamethasone, we and and supportive care, we don't have anything. So that's the other problem. We really don't have a miracle cure for this med- for this uh, very serious and potentially life 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 threatening illness. Okay, and I'm I'm glad you referenced the um, psychological factor that with the announcement of the vaccine and the efficacy of the vaccine, there may have been uh, what I'll refer to at least on a um, less than thoughtful level, uh, belief that we are now past it because we have the vaccine. And the rollout is just beginning. I'd love to get, you know, your take on, both of your takes on the scheduling, the availability, sort of how it will be administered, uh, the, we'll call it the triaging of the population in terms of the availability and, and just how you view sort of the timetable for herd immunity, uh, and widespread availability of the vaccine? Well, well I told Bill, um, I am receiving the vaccine uh, on Wednesday, this Wednesday at 10.30 in the morning. So the uh, UF Health has received the vaccine, is setting up the administration for frontline workers uh, starting uh, in, in 48 hours. So um, it's been very efficient to date, and uh, it looks very promising that way. There have been a lot of logistical organizations that have been helping uh, with this, and, and Bill can speak more to that. But, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of frontline workers are going to want it. I have not been able to be in the hospital since March of last year, so I could not be more excited about taking the vaccine, which will then allow me to actually uh, – physically take care of patients again, rather than just doing telemedicine. Bill, Fred just alluded to the fact that it's frontline workers who will be receiving this first. And I know uh, from your government experience, you spent a lot of time around the logistics of delivery. Can you give the audience a sense of how this is being rolled out? Uh, Who will be the first recipients? And what I'll refer to as generally the timetable. Well, sure. There's there's some some good epidemiologic reasons why we're doing healthcare workers 
and then nursing homes first. I mean, these are the people who are on the who are one, in one case on the front lines of dealing with this, but on the other on the other case, the ones who are at the most at risk. So. While they are make sense to do from that standpoint, it also makes sense because these are structured medical organizations that understand how you do vaccination programs and they have people who under who understand the whole philosophy of getting vaccinated. So we're going to be able to iron out some of the kinks in that last mile part. What we've been doing for the past you know, six or so months with Operation Warp, Warp Speed is developing the logistics, the supply chains that will get the vaccine to the vaccinators. The problem is that it's that last mile, that how do you deal with taking it from the transport, which the ultra-cold ultra transport, to in the refrigerated time, which is different between the two vaccines, to the actually mixing it up because this is not a vaccine like most flu shots are today where you pop it out of the box and it's literally all set up and all I have to do is stick it in an arm and squeeze the uh, squeeze the plunger. Now this vaccine comes in a vial that is uh, freeze-dried. You have to uh, get it to basically get it to room temperature. Then you have to mix it with um, with a, something to dilute it. It's either saline or water. Um, I'm not sure which it is with this vaccine. I haven't gotten into the technical details of the mix-up. And then that's five per people's worth of vaccine. That has to be mixed up and then given to those five people um, within just a few hours. So it's a it's got to be a well-rehearsed process, a well-executed process, because the last thing we want is to be wasting large quantities of vaccine and when you it's mixed up and then doesn't get get used. So that's what we've been doing over the past you know, six months is the getting it to the people. Now we're using these first uh, these first populations in order to get to get it to them uh, and work out how the details of that. But now. What? Who's next? And this is where much of the the debate and the political give and take is going to come in, because while we have recommendations that have been made by the um, uh, National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Medicine, uh, they've been they've been turned into nationwide recommendations by CDC. But now each state, basically each governor, is going to determine who's next in priority. And there's a lot of, of give and take on that. You may have seen that uh, Governor Cuomo is threatening to sue the United States because the vaccine was distributed proportionally by population. And Governor Cuomo maintains that states like New York have a higher representation of people who are at greater risk. And so he feels that they sh that should be given, uh, this sh the distribution should be made based on at-risk populations. So that's one of the orders. And then who is the, who are the essential workers that by immunizing essential workers, you can allow them to provide services that protect others and get the economy moving versus focusing on immunizing at-risk people and maybe some of the essential workers don't get immunized as soon. Those are all decisions that are going to be made at the um, at the at the governor's level, at the state level, uh, and then and then comes up the, the how do we actually execute those priorities at the um, at the individual vaccination site level. Fred, as you think about the uh, rollout, your sense here in terms of adoption, acceptance of the vaccine. And uh, where things stand. Well, I think initially there may be some resistance, but I think as more and more uh, leaders 
receive the vaccine, for instance, boy, I'm going to be one of the very first people and I'm very excited about it. Uh, I think, and the other was people realize the implications for vaccination. For instance, in my own case, I have not been able to see my brother who's in Connecticut. Uh, I can't fly because of the risk. I will now be able to see my brother uh, and do that safely without the danger of contracting the infection or spreading the infection to anyone else. So uh, these are giant pluses. The risk of a sore arm and a little bit of a febrile reaction, a little bit of muscle ache, pause in comparison to the, to uh, feel safe. The benefits are so great. I can't imagine as people um, understand this uh, more clearly that, that everyone isn't going to rush to get the vaccine. And I think there is some thinking, if you look at some of the polling, the popular polling that's been taken recently, including uh, amongst hospital workers. I uh, read through that study this morning, yeah. and, and it was done at a major East Coast hospital back in, in midsummer when the vaccine was first starting, to, the, the front runners were starting to come out. Um, 35% of hospital workers said they would take it. 25% said they would not take it on under any circumstances, and the remainder said they're not sure yet. So then in the last week, they've done the same study, and they found that 60% said they would take it, and still 25% said no way, no how. Notwithstanding the results of the research and the testing and the sample group, there's still a significant proportion of the population, even amongst hospital workers who are showing resistance to taking the vaccine. And without, you know, projecting here, that's before, you know, social media takes hold. And the fact that, um, you know, in an era of, of grandiose conspiracy theories and in a country where we're having trouble with uh, anti-vaxxers and measles, uh, as we look at the numbers and we look at the education effort that might be needed here. In other words, this is not just about the development of a vaccine. This is also about creating a culture where people will trust the institutions, trust the physicians, trust the science, trust the CDC, and obviously have trust in the vaccine. What do you guys think is going to be necessary to, and Fauci has talked about, what is it, 75% compliance bill as being the sort of the marker, the over-under to achieve herd immunities. What do you think we have to do to get to that point? That's why a lot of the money, uh, proportionally not a lot of money, but we're, we're spending a lot of money on Operation Warp Speed. There was, a, there was and is a large part of the budget that is uh, dedicated to a PR campaign. Unfortunately, a large part of the population that, that is most at risk, um, especially uh, less economically advantaged communities are some of the most resistant communities to getting the vaccine. So we need to have a large PR program that is aimed straight at those communities to get them to step up and get the vaccine for themselves, for their families, for their communities. Yeah, I think it's going to be important for uh, role models that that those groups particularly look toward uh, to be vaccinated and encourage vaccination. And I think what's going to be very important is leaders from all spheres of life 
are going to have to, to support the vaccine by receiving it. And Bill, you know, the government does spend a fair amount of money on this, but sometimes it misdirects and sometimes it doesn't hit the target. Can you maybe talk about how the FDA is going to continue to monitor the efficacy of the vaccine, any side effects, getting out public health advisements, etc. But obviously, the, as this is rolled out, there's going to be regulatory follow-up and oversight uh, to, to the effort. So there is a very extensive system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that's been in place for many years. Fred, you may know how, how long it's been out, but it requires that any adverse vaccine event be reported to the FDA. That's a very, very streamlined system for, for, for doing that. And they will utilize that, the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, to track any untoward events that may may or may not be related to the vaccine uh, in order to make sure that we both have confidence in it. But if something shows up that was unexpected, um, which has, ha- has happened with vaccines in recent history, that it's identified quickly and addressed quickly. Yeah, and no, I, I agree with Bill. Um, and already uh, in Great Britain, two healthcare workers that were highly uh, atopic or had high a tendency toward allergies did have anaphylactic reactions to the uh, vaccine. So now that will alert everybody to that potential danger. And, and what will be recommended is you will, we need to wait 10 to 15, 20 minutes after the vaccine to make sure you don't have an immediate uh, hypersensitivity reaction. And what to do about those people that really have I tend to start a high uh, level of allergic reactions, I think is open to question right now, and uh, they may not receive the vaccine at this point. Uh, Just in closing, the approval process is just one step in the oversight of of vaccines and medicines in general, and that the FDA, you know, will obviously remains vigilant. But maybe you can talk about any views you have about the differences between the vaccines, the efficacy, side effects, and things like that, if if there is, in fact, anything to report? The main difference between the Moderna and the Pfizer is the requirements for uh, f- freezers. Uh, I believe the Moderna is minus 20 degree, which are standard freezers, and it has a much longer shelf life in the refrigerator. So it will be an easier vaccine to distribute It doesn't require the minus 70 degree centigrade freezers, which are are very expensive and are, uh, I've used them a lot in my research and they tend to go bad after about five five or six years because they have to compress to such low temperatures. And those uh, freezers cost somewhere in the order of, I think about $12,000 each. So they're not cheap. So uh, in resource limited areas, I don't think that the Pfizer vaccine makes sense. I think that's my major concern with the Pfizer. Now, the good news is both the Moderna and the Pfizer have an efficacy of 95%, which is really impressive. And the Moderna managed to, in their control group, they had more individuals that developed severe COVID-19. So they were able to say not only did they they had 95% protection, but 100% prevention of severe disease based on their series. That's really exciting. So that means if you get the vaccine, even if you were to get the disease, it would be mild. 
and where you would never end up in the ICU. The other good piece of information on vaccines that's come out in the last couple of days is that there, when we were initially told that, that there was not a significant uh, vaccine response until after the second vaccine. Now, at least for the Pfizer vaccine, it looks like 10 days after the first, you've achieved immunity. But you still need to have the second dose in order to make sure that stays at an immune level. Without the two doses, there is no evidence that you maintain good immunity. But you don't have to wait. It's going to it's gonna move up the immunity timeline by about about three to four weeks from what we initially thought it was. And that's that's certainly useful. Probably the week ahead will reveal more information about what's occurring across the, the country as well as the rollout of the vaccine. Bill, thank you. Fred, thanks as always. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thank thanks you, David. Stay thank safe you. and well. Bye-bye. 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 Fred Southwick is a disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to RING for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can get critical information on the COVID-19 vaccine, track key virus developments with news, analysis, and commentary to help you formulate your own policies, procedures, and plans. Sign up at RainNetwork.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.